Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, to discuss some of the key news stories affecting general practice. It's been a really busy couple of weeks in the NHS, so we've got a lot to talk about today. Coming up, we'll be looking at the government's plans to tackle the backlog of care in the NHS and what it all means for general practice. We'll be discussing reports that Health Secretary Sajid Javid has recommended to Boris Johnson that family doctors should be directly employed by hospitals instead of running their own surgeries, a proposal some have said would effectively nationalise GPs. And we'll be asking what's going on at the BMA with regards to industrial action and looking at why debates about this within the association have echoes of the Romney report into sexism from a couple of years ago. There's also news about a major new report from the BMA about racism in the NHS. And finally, we'll have our usual dose of good news to finish off. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Before we start, just a little encouragement. If you're enjoying our podcast, then please do think about rating us. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, on to the news. First up, this week saw the government set out its plan for how it intends to tackle the backlog of care in the NHS. There are currently a record 6 million people on the NHS waiting list, which has ballooned as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Growing lists of people waiting for hospital treatment have been one of the key factors driving the huge pressures general practice is under, as patients facing longer waits for treatment make extra appointments and need additional support from their GPs. Nick, clearing the backlog or even getting waiting lists back to what it was before the pandemic is obviously a huge task. What did Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid have to say about the timeframes involved in his statement to Parliament this week? As you said, there are currently six million people on the NHS waiting list, which is a record figure. And the government's plans for working through the backlog make clear that this isn't going to go away overnight. Sajid Javid admitted in Parliament that the waiting list will continue to rise from its current level. And crucially, that it won't start to come down until March 2024, two years from now. Just in case anyone was in any doubt about this, that there is a long road ahead for the NHS and long waits for hospital treatment will continue to pile additional pressure on GPs for some time to come. In terms of the time frame set out by the government, there are some more immediate and some medium term aims. Um, In terms of the short term goals, we know that by September last year, more than 300,000 people have been waiting more than a year for treatment. And the longest waits are what the government says it will eliminate first. By July this year, the government says waits of longer than two years for elective treatment will be eliminated. Waits over 18 months are meant to stop by April 2023 and waits of more than one year by March 2025. And the government says that there will be 30% more elective activity by 2024-25 compared with pre-pandemic levels. So what does all that mean for GPs, do you think? What it means for GPs is that a major driver of increased pressure on general practice is going to continue to be around for the foreseeable future. The waiting list for NHS hospital treatment adds to GP workload because patients who've been referred to hospital and have not yet received the treatment they need to resolve a healthcare problem or alleviate their condition need ongoing care from their GP while they wait. And we know it's not just the provision of clinical care that adds to GP practice workload. It's also the admin that goes with the extra prescribing, chasing referrals and and so on. We've been reporting on rising GP workload for many years. And over the past decade, the NHS waiting list has been growing rapidly and adding to the burden on general practice. 
in in 2013, there were around two and a half million people on the NHS waiting list, so less than half the figure today. And the numbers waiting really long times for care were far lower. Before the pandemic started, the waiting list had already risen to around four and a half million, and it's now at six million, as we know. And the government has said it could keep rising for two more years. So for a GP workforce that's already struggling to stay on top of demand because there aren't enough GPs and the population is ageing and requiring ever more complex consultations, this has to be a huge red flag. And the government's recovery plan does acknowledge pressure on GPs uh, and the need to support them, which is welcome. It says that to support patients facing long delays, open quotes, we will work closely with general practice teams and the other partners who support patients while they wait, close quotes. And it says that NHS systems, open quotes, will need to take ongoing action to support general practice capacity where most patients will present close quotes. But given that workforce is perhaps the biggest limiting factor for general practice and that the government has admitted it's not on track to bring in the extra 6,000 GPs it promised by 2024-25, GPs are going to need a lot more detail on how that support is going to work. Having looked at the plan in a bit more detail, one of the key things in there for GPs and general practice is the use of the advice and guidance services that involve GPs getting advice from a specialist rather than just referring them straight away. Um, The plan says that this enables patients to access specialist advice in a more timely fashion and supports management of patients in the community. Um, I think it's fair to say some GPs find these schemes really useful, but others have raised concerns that they can end up creating additional unfunded work for primary care with requests for tests and monitoring left in general practice when they previously might have been carried out by hospitals. And some GPs have also raised concern that it could lead to more referrals being rejected. I mean, one of the things we do know is that from April, GPs will be incentivised to use these advice and guidance schemes. There's £10 million in the Investment and Impact Fund, which is the additional funding PCNs receive if they hit certain targets. This will reward networks that use specialist advice requests for at least 6.6 patients per 100 referred. And it will apply across 12 specialties, including cardiology, dermatology, ENT, among others. I mean, the plan also talks about better engagement with patients who are waiting for treatment, you know, acknowledging that a lack of information often leads patients to turn to their GP practice for help, which places additional strain on primary care, like Nick was talking about there. Luke, um, this is going to be a new digital platform for those waiting for hospital treatment and also a new pre-op care initiative. What exactly are those things? Yes, so the My Planned Care digital platform is a is an online portal for patients that gives people access to information ahead of planned surgeries and um, it will include details and waiting times for their provider. So the government has said that NHS providers will be able to upload supportive information to the platform to help patients um, manage their conditions while they wait for for their treatment so the idea behind all of this is about keeping patients informed as you say um, about their surgeries which hopefully could reduce sort of the numbers of calls um, that gps field from patients either asking when their surgery is um or or sort of why it's being delayed um so that portal is expected to launch by the end of the month the other branch of this initiative is the pre-op care campaign which will see patients waiting for major procedures given additional support from care teams to make sure that they are medically fit um, for surgery. So NHS England has said that teams will screen patients and work with them to develop personalised plans ahead of their procedures. So this could include advice, for example, um, on prevent- 
prevention services such as stop smoking or diet and exercise plans. And the main thrust of these initiatives um, is to reduce the huge numbers of treatments that are cancelled each year. I think it's something like a third of on-the-day cancellations are cancelled because people are not clinically ready for their treatment. So all of this is about ensuring that we aren't adding to the backlog um, by delaying surgeries further um, and to ensure that people are getting their treatment when it's scheduled. Is there any impact these things could have on general practice? So, yeah, in theory, these measures could be quite positive for general practice. Um, So giving patients greater access to information about their surgeries means that they may not have to call their GP for an update um, on when they could be going in for the procedure. And patients being contacted by teams with personalised plans could mean that they are less likely to present to GPs in the meantime with issues. However, um, the BMA has expressed concerns that the measures could add to um, pre-existing GP workloads rather than sort of reduce them. Um, And Farah Jamil, the GPC chair, has said that this will sort of this could happen if the initiatives aren't trust tested um, or if there aren't enough staff to to deliver them. Um, One thing in particular that she said is that there should be services um, or there should be a service included such as a telephone line or point of contact for patients and their carers um, that could be used to troubleshoot their queries about the services that are coming in. So particularly the um, uh, the platform, the digital platform, which I imagine will field some some calls um, and have a few teething issues, as all technology seems to. Um, uh, so, yeah, basically the main fear here is that services could inadvertently push more work onto GP teams who... Um, who I guess don't really want extra calls about people not being able to log on or log on and such. Um, but I actually got in touch with NHS England, um, who said that the measures, quote, will not negatively impact GP workloads, um, end quote. Um, and they specifically said that they were designed to provide information to patients already referred beyond their GP. Um, so fingers crossed they don't have an impact on general practice and they do help patients to keep abreast of what's happening with their surgeries. Thanks, Luke. Um, As I said at the start of the podcast, we've got a lot to talk about today. So it means that some stories we've run on the website over the past two weeks, we just don't have time to discuss in the podcast. But I just wanted to highlight one of them here that's really worth a read. We've been talking about how hard GPs are working. And this week, Luke took a look at how the workload crisis is impacting on GPs who are leading primary care networks. He spoke to a number of clinical directors who talked about how challenging their role is and concerns about whether funding to support the management of PCNs is enough. Do take a look at that. You can find it on gponline.com. So moving on, we started last week on GP Online following up reports published in The Times that Shajid Javid had recommended to Boris Johnson that GPs should be directly employed by hospitals instead of running their own surgeries as independent contractors. Luke, what exactly do we know about this story and these plans? So, as you say, what we know about all of this comes from the Times article, which claims that Mr Javid has told the Prime Minister that there are considerable drawbacks to the current way general practice is organised. The article says that there will be no forcible move to take over GPs, um, but instead uh, GPs would be incentivised to be directly employed by academy-style hospitals under the plans. So this would mean a radical change to the 70-year-old structure of the NHS and general practice that would mean that 
GPs are directly employed by hospitals instead of running their own surgeries, or to put that simply, a sort of scrapping of the independent contractor model. Um, there are similar initiatives underway already. Uh, there's a model in Wolverhampton where nine local GP practices are run by the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, but we've seen a number of practices pull out of this initiative um, since its inception. Another thing, um, according to the news article, uh, it, it makes clear that the main motive, um, or it believes the main motive of this move would be to keep people out of hospital, um, which we all know is sort of high on the list of priorities of the Prime Minister and the government at the minute. And it also says that the Health and Social Care Secretary is advising an independent review of the future of primary care, which he believes could help to drive innovation and, uh, and also bring together primary care and secondary care. Right. Well, I mean, there's a fairly radical suggestion there. Um, Nick, I can't imagine the BMA are in favour of this at all. What did what did it have to say about it? The, the BMA said it was a kick in the teeth to hear about possible plans to overhaul general practice through the press, uh, and particularly after the staggering effort GP practices have put in through the pandemic. Given the pressure practices are under and the fact that the BMA wants a fresh look at the GP contract, there is actually some appetite for change. But doctors' leaders would obviously want to have been consulted and involved in any plans to consult on change. And the, the other factor is that the, the BMA have said they felt now wasn't the time for a wholesale rethink of the model of general practice and that the, the biggest immediate change that was needed is a major funding boost. There's also an interesting line on this from the NHS Confederation. They said that moving GPs under the control of hospitals clearly wouldn't solve the workforce crisis or the shortage of funding for primary care. And that the whole idea appears to be built on the false premise that hospitals are busy simply because of failures in general practice. So they're linking it effectively to the whole narrative around access to face-to-face -face appointments and the false idea promoted in parts of the media and by some politicians that practices have somehow been closed during the pandemic. And as Luke mentioned there, we know there are some parts of the country where this has already happened, you know, most notably Wolverhampton, as Luke said. What would be the potential impact on something like this for both GPs and patients? So if the plan was to involve stripping GPs of their independent contractor status, that would amount to nationalisation in a way. Uh, but the, the idea of reorganising the NHS so that practices work under the control of hospitals and as a direct part of the same structure, which is what is, is, is part of what Mr Javid seems to be uh, seems to be talking about, is something we've seen referred to as vertical integration. Uh, you mentioned Wolverhampton, where nine practices are now part of the area's uh, hospital trust. And the arrangement they have means that practices give up their contracts and become subcontractors to the hospital, with partners becoming salaried employees of the hospital. Um, and one of the arguments here is that by, it, by its very nature, independent contractor status empowers GPs to be genuinely independent advocates for their patients to have the control to innovate in how they provide services and to be able to speak out in ways that doctors directly employed by the NHS may not feel able to. But it is a complex picture. Some GPs have called for years for a move to a salaried service, uh, partly to allow doctors in primary care a bit more control over their workload, uh, potentially the ability to go on strike in ways that partners can't at the moment, for example. Um, and, and those advocates of a salaried service would probably not want to sign up to being controlled by hospitals. But some might like, on the other hand, the idea of becoming part of the salaried NHS workforce. 
Uh, and then there's another factor around the cost implications that a change like this uh, might bring. The, the RCGP response to the idea of nationalisation emphasised in part the value for money that general practice offers currently. And that's partly about some of the benefits of independence that I've already mentioned. But it's also about, about the fact that GPs running their own practices are incredibly dedicated, generally putting in very long hours that run well over what they're contracted to do. And obviously, addressing those long working hours and easing workload is important. But the government might find that by changing the model and stripping GPs of independent contractor status, the workload remains, but the workforce to deliver it has actually been substantially stripped back. I actually spoke to Royal College of GPs president and former chair of the college, Professor Dame Claire Gerardra, about what she thought about these proposals last week. She wasn't speaking on behalf of the college, but about what she thought as a GP partner of many years. This is what she had to say. Well, number one, it's nonsense. You know, how can hospitals run general practice? They, we have had, some hospitals have run general practice, by the way, uh, I think in the north of England, but very few. They don't understand general practice. But number two, there is no money to be made. There's no economies that we can make. There's, we're doing our best. You can hear the full interview with Dame Claire on next week's podcast, where we talk about her career and her groundbreaking work with doctors experiencing mental ill health. We've written a few stories over the past week about pressure on the BMA to move forward with a formal vote on industrial action by GPs. We've talked about industrial action on the podcast before. And if you remember, in November last year, GP practices voted in favour of being formally balloted 1,700 GP practices responded to that indicative ballot, which found that more than half were prepared to pull out of PCNs at the next opt-out period. Meanwhile, four in five were prepared to refuse to comply with requests for COVID-19 vaccination exemption certificates or to participate in a coordinated and continuous change to their appointment book, basically NHS 111 having access to appointments. But some of the reports coming out of the BMA about what's going on with industrial action have also brought up echoes of what happened with the Romney report into sexism within the association a couple of years ago. Nick, why has the issue of industrial action come up again now? So GPs backed forms of industrial action in an indicative ballot last November, as you mentioned, and some members of the BMA's GP committee have become concerned that rather than work out its next steps and how to move forward on the findings from that indicative vote, the BMA has kicked the, the prospect of action into the long grass. There, there is a sense among some GP leaders that there needs to be an urgent move to have a formal ballot, so an actual one rather than just an indicative one, and that's to maintain pressure on the government to come up with solutions to some of the problems facing the profession that, that triggered the indicative ballot uh, some months ago. And how does all this relate to the Romney report into sexism? So the, the, the GPC member who proposed the motion that led to the indicative ballot, Dr. Claire Sieber, uh, at the same time as calling for progress on the, on the issue of industrial action, has said that since she joined the committee just under four months ago, she was made to feel unwelcome. And she's also said that she felt bullied. And she and others have spoken about concerns that the BMA's resolution process, so that's the process for reporting uh, potential breaches of its code of conduct, uh, is being used to try and stop people from speaking out within the GP committee. And Dr Sieber said she was um, left with the sense that the BMA was no place for a woman who wishes to speak her mind. And ultimately, that some issues raised in the Romney report, which found in 2019 that bullying and sexism in the GEP committee were a problem, uh, were still concerns now. And Dr Sieber has now resigned, saying she didn't feel she could continue in the committee and has questioned its leadership. 
The BMA, for its part, has said it's very sorry to see her leave and that it was upsetting for it as an organisation to hear about the experience she'd had within the committee. And there is a, a BMA investigation into what happened uh, ongoing now so th- that we may hear more down the line about uh, about all of this. So what do we think is going to happen with industrial action and the ballot now? I think the likelihood is that the answer is not a lot in that this is this is why I think um, a number of committee members have been speaking out. I mean, the BMA, for its part, would say that it has that indicative ballot result as a tool to use as leverage in negotiation. So it can say to the government, look, you know, we do have serious disgruntlement within general practice as evidenced by this uh, by this ballot. You know, a significant number of practices are prepared to take action uh, in these sorts of ways, potentially. But, for example, one of the things that GPs said that they were prepared to do uh, in that indicative ballot was to withdraw from PCNs at the next opt-out window. So the next opt-out window is coming up fairly soon and is likely to happen before, as I understand it, the next GPC England meeting. So that means, for example, that, that bits of potential action such as that are going to be off the table by default. So, you know, it remains to be seen. I mean, I I think there is still a groundswell of opinion within the GP committee. You know, I I, I can't say whether, you know, that's a majority opinion or not, but certainly there is a, there is a, there is, you know, that is a a voice we're hearing from within the GPC committee that, um, that further steps need to be taken on industrial action. That pressure will continue. What happens next, I think, is, is anyone's guess, really. Thanks, Nick. Another story that came out of the BMA last week was a major report into racism in the NHS and in particular the experience of doctors. It made for very depressing reading. Luke, you've covered this for us. What did the report have to say? Yes, so the interim findings uh, from the union's report, Racism in Medicine, found that three quarters of NHS doctors had suffered racism at least once um, in the last two years while almost one in five experienced racist incidents on a regular basis. It showed that a huge majority of black and Asian respondents said racism was an issue in the NHS and that went for uh, most uh, respondents of mixed race as, as well. I think one of the statistics from the study that stood out most for me was um, was the fact that a fifth of doctors had either considered leaving or had left uh, their job within the past two years due to racial discrimination. I mean, having to leave your job due to racism um, is just completely unacceptable and shouldn't be happening anywhere. And and it's also important to point out, I think, that uh, the BMA found um, underreporting of incidents of racism, with many doctors saying they didn't think anything would come of their complaints, and that was uh, a major factor in why um, why they hadn't sort of flagged issues. And um, what is the BMA saying needs to be done to address this issue? Yeah, so the BMA said that employees and the government have a duty of care to address the concerns of those who work within the health service. Uh, Char Nagpal um, has also implored uh, decision makers uh, to get their heads out of the sand and act now. But uh, it's worth noting that this was only the interim findings of a report, um, the Anti-Racism in Medicine report, that will be published this spring. So we can expect the BMA to set out a series of recommendations to tackle racism and equality in the NHS very soon. Finally, we've just got time for our usual good news slot, which this week highlights two pieces of research that have demonstrated the benefits of continuity of care Firstly, in the British Journal of General Practice, a study has shown that a higher level of continuity of care was associated with a lower rate of adverse incidents in patients with dementia. Patients with more continuity of care had a lower risk of delirium, incontinence and emergency admissions to hospital. 
It was also associated with safer prescribing. So that really does point to positive steps that could be taken to improve outcomes for patients with dementia. Meanwhile, another study also in the BJGP highlighted the importance of young people having a trusting relationship with their GP if they are to discuss sensitive issues and issues relating to mental health. The authors said that if GPs were to do this, they needed unhurried consultations and the ability to deliver continuity of care. So both of these studies are adding to the growing evidence base that shows how important continuity of care is for improving health and improving outcomes, which I think only reinforces the argument for strengthening the GP workforce. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com and follow us on Twitter at gponlinenews. Thanks so much to Nick and Luke. We're back next week when I'm really pleased to say that I'll be speaking to current Royal College of GPs president and former RCGP chair, Professor Dame Claire Gerarda. We're talking about her career, what it was like being a groundbreaking female leader in the profession, her work with doctors experiencing mental ill health and her current role as college president. She was really great to speak to and has some fascinating insights. So please do join us then.